Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, April 4th, 2022, and this year we're excited to take you on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebrich with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Eero, sitting here feeling grand, feeling big like Grover Cleveland. <laughs> we are talking about the Rio Grande. We got it. Yeah. <laughs> We're talking about the Rio Grande sucker, and our guests are Paul Jones, who's the project manager of sagebrush and grassland ecosystems, and we've got fisheries biologist Cole Britton, and both are from our Colorado field office in Gunnison, Colorado, correct? Yes, that is correct. Warm welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So let's set the scene a little bit here. It's April. It's the time of year when the sage grouse are lecking, the Rio Grande suckers are getting ready to spawn. Cole, could we have you describe what this fish looks like? And then, Paul, maybe we can have you sketch us a quick picture of the landscape here. That sounds good. So the Rio Grande sucker is probably, on average, about 120 millimeters in length. Convert that back. I think that's right around about six inches. Very um, cryptically colored, beautiful fish. If you are familiar with digital camo, it looks like it's wearing a coat of digital camo as it swims around the stream for most of the year. It has a kind of a lighter yellow belly to it. And um, on the sides, it has that cryptic kind of coloring in order to help it blend in with its environment, except for when it spawns. When it goes into spawning season, it puts on its coat and gets ready for the big dance. And this involves getting a red ventral line, a red line down the mid stripe on either side of the fish. And both the back and the stomach start to turn a little bit black. Because it is a sucker, the mouth is kind of subventral to the nose, almost like an elephant without the trunk. Kind of uses that to feed around on the bottom of the stream. And then its operculum is actually where the gill plate is. It's very close to the front. So it always looks like it's swimming around with um, chubby cheeks, like it has a full mouth or it knows where the buffet is and we don't. So this creature is very charismatic. We like it a lot. It's a beautiful fish, smaller bodied, which is why it gets outcompeted by the non-natives very easily. Sounds awesome. That's a good description. <laughs> yeah, I mean, smaller, but big shoulder. It's, uh, yeah. For its size, uh, um, it, it withstands these, these big spring flows. So it's a chunky little guy. And uh, uh, yeah, just magnificent. It's a remarkable species to be able to work with. And, you know, at this time of the year, it's not the only critter that's putting on its dancing shoes. The San Luis Valley is, 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 a, is basically this remnant rift valley. It's uh, in the headwaters of the Rio Grande River. But this portion of the, the basin that we're talking about is what's called a closed basin. And historically, hundreds of thousands of years ago, was a giant lake called Lake Alamosa. And over time, that, that lake has dwindled. But the valley is this is historically this massive complex of wetlands. But you, so we have these wetland components, but at the same time, we have these terrestrial uplands, rangelands uh, components as well. And, and within that, in the sagebrush, historically, we have large populations of Gunnison sage grouse. And the Gunnison sage grouse is another indigenous species, historically found basically south of the Colorado River in uh, southwestern Colorado, southeastern Utah, northeastern Arizona, and northwestern New Mexico. Today, there's basically six remnant populations, the largest one of which occurs in the Gunnison Basin, which is just over the divide from the San Luis Valley, but we still have a remnant population down there in the San Luis Valley. Mid-April is really kind of the peak of the breeding season. You're out 
in the sagebrush and there's still snow and, and you're out there before dawn and you kind of hear this chuckling sound like water flowing, like a small stream flowing under snow. And as the, as the daylight comes up, you start realizing that there's something moving out there and there's these little black shapes and there's these flashes of their white breasts. And, and these, these birds are, are dancing on their, the breeding grounds called leks. And, and they're, they have these very sharp feathers on their breasts that they rub their wingtips against. At the same time, they're inflating these giant air sacs and they're making this kind of whiffing, bubbling, burbling sound. And it's, and it's this, this magnificent display. And the San Luis Valley is kind of the edge of where these species overlap. And Cole and I have worked together for a number of years. And uh, we've kind of worked on that interchange between these different landscapes and these different species. And we've always developed this philosophy of trying to look at systems as a whole, rather than looking at systems from a species standpoint. I didn't start out as a fisheries biologist. I, well, I started out as a game warden and I always accused my fisheries friends of not seeing the landscape because they never pulled their heads out of the water. And, and so when Cole came on and was working for me, I spent as much time having him look at terrestrial habitat as aquatic habitat, trying to figure out how these systems function, how water comes into the system, how it's stored in the system and how it's released in the system. And as we come into a period of mega drought, climate change, uh, and then just human uses of water where we're seeing massive changes in natural discharge in these systems. All of these things are coming together and all of these amazing species, they're shouting at us that things are a little bit out of balance. And if we start looking at them all together, the solutions start becoming a little more manageable, perhaps. Cole, I guess a question for you is what are some of the other native fishes here and what kind of habitat conditions are they adapted to? And I guess then, Paul, I mean, just something to keep tying in is how are these other species also tied to water? Because water is obviously a very important resource out here. There's a, a host of species that are involved with this environment. To begin with, I'll talk about some of the other fish that share the waters with the Rio Grande sucker. And that's the Rio Grande chub, which was at one point determined or stated to be the most numerous fish in the entire Rio Grande system. And you also have the Rio Grande cutthroat. And the Rio Grande cutthroat is a trout species, and it likes to be in the headwaters of streams. It tolerates cold water a lot better than these other species do. And as you move down that system from the mountains and you get lower in elevation, that's when you run into the Rio Grande chub and the Rio Grande sucker. And the system that they're in is dominated by two major hydrological events. One happens every springtime, and that's when the snow comes off the Sangre de Cristo Mountains and goes into the San Luis Valley. And so that's a big pulse of fresh water that comes off the mountains. And that's when, why these fish are adapted to spawn in the springtime. That's why we see them getting colored up in what we call the dance. And they're going to go and they move upstream as these flows come downstream. And they move upstream, find good spawning habitat. They spawn, they release their eggs, and those eggs float downstream with those flows. And those flows start to reduce later in the summer as that snow melt begins to all come off the mountains. And that's when we start seeing our second water event, and that's the monsoonal rains. And this one's a little less predictable than the snow melt event is. And so sometimes we get a pulse of water during that time period. But uh, many years, especially lately, we've been getting less and less rainfall during that time period. And that's where we start seeing the Rio Grande sucker and the Rio Grande chub. And they're these in these environments that go intermittent after the flood. And what I mean by intermittent is these streams go dry temporarily in certain sections during low water parts of the year. 
And so these fish are adapted to these environments. And one of the first explorers into this area had documented the Rio Grande chub. And he said that it was the most numerous species in the entire Rio Grande system. And this species is now hardly located within the main Rio Grande system. I believe there's only one aboriginal population that we found in the historical Rio Grande River. All the other ones have been isolated into more remote streams. And that goes for the Rio Grande sucker too. The population on the Baca is only one of two aboriginal populations left in the entire state of Colorado. We are just very fortunate that it happened to be in an area that we're able to conserve, like the Baca Refuge. Because this area is so unique when it comes to water, the St. Louis Valley is about the size of Connecticut. It's about 125 miles long by about 50 miles wide. And the top portion of that is a closed basin. So that water doesn't contribute to the Rio Grande like the lower portion does. And because of that, the water rights are very um, tied up with kind of a circular method of making sure that that water is contributing to the groundwater so that agriculturists can use it and that you're pulling some of the water off the land. And so it gets very tricky with using water in this area. And because of that, the San Luis Valley is one of the most um, forward thinking water management municipalities that we have in the state of Colorado. I'm going to interrupt and I'm going to correct Cole a little bit. Rear Grand Sucker and Rear Grand Cutthroat Trout, they do overlap, but the, the sucker does have a much broader ability to withstand warmer water temperatures and they survive better in some of these pool habitats that remain. And so from a restoration standpoint, what we see is a lot of focus on cutthroats and headwaters, but historically those two species were kind of sympatric. Rio Grande Chub were, were typically found further downstream in these systems, but to a certain amount, this is surmised because we don't have any indigenous populations where we have all three species together. They, these, these species, for all intents and purposes, were lost to the landscape. At least we thought they were until the late 80s, early 90s. But uh, we get this kind of spectrum where there's overlap. And then as you go further downstream, it's more dominated by suckers and chubs. Oh, interesting. So I'm just curious about the geologic history of this watershed, especially the headwaters, because the Rio Grande is famously, you know, the river that's the border of Texas and Mexico eventually, and that flows into the Gulf of Mexico, which is part of the Atlantic Ocean. So are these headwaters, have they always been in an Atlantic slope drainage, or at one time did they flow into the Pacific? They've always been an Atlantic headwaters setting, but, you know, Colorado is kind of unique because we have both the Rio Grande cutthroat trout and the greenback cutthroat trout, which are both front range, as we refer to it, eastern slope species that are part of either the, the, the Rio Grande drainage or the Missouri River drainage. The divide, the continental divide between uh, the west slope and the east slope, there was a tremendous amount of volcanic activity and, and things like that. And we believe what happened is that avalanches, debris dams, beaver dams perhaps even, allowed some of these headwater streams to actually back up and flow over the other side of the divide. And, and oh, so okay. these fish are genetically very similar. They're subspecies of cutthroat, but they're geologically, they were identified back when we first started exploring and settling the San Luis Valley. They were some of the fish that were observed and, and actually collected and they are these unique fish that somehow climbed the divide and, and slipped into the Atlantic drainage. 
couple of years ago, 2019, we had a tremendous snow year, the most prolific avalanche season we've ever seen in Colorado. And, and we literally watched avalanches dam up streams. Well, once I saw that, it is very likely that what we had are some of these events where these, these really shallow sloping divides had water that crept up and those fish were able to exploit that, huh. that flow. Man. That's cool. So events like that can kind of influence how fish move and then just water flow in general. What are some of the things you guys are learning about how the suckers are moving and what are some techniques you're using to study that? Yeah, I guess maybe what we should do is talk a little bit about the Baca National Wildlife Refuge, which is yeah. throw in one more wonderful thing about the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and, and the whole conservation program. So like Cole described, the San Luis Valley is this big agricultural complex Usually, agricultural communities are very resistant to private land turning public and being lost to both agriculture on the tax rolls, et cetera. The San Luis Valley, because of these large wetland complexes, there's a lot of water there. Colorado is a developing state. The front range of Colorado is a fairly arid part of the state, and that's where most of the development is. And there's people have been eyeing the San Luis Valley forever for its water. And so the community came together. There was a big push to protect some critical pieces of land. And there was a, there was a private piece of land known as the, it was a Spanish land grant, the Baca land grant. Cole, what is it? 96,000 acres? 95,000 contiguous acres. 95,000 contiguous, just a, just a little piece um, that sits on the, the right at the base of, of the Sangre de Cristo mountains and actually butts up to Great Sand Dunes National Park. There was a large coalition of people that came together and they said, if the Fish and Wildlife Service could acquire this piece and protect it in perpetuity from water development, that was something to be sought after. But unlike many other national wildlife refuges, one of the parameters that was written into the enabling legislation is that that water, that had to continue to be put to the use that it was adjudicated for under Colorado water law. So they're caught in this conundrum of they're managing for waterfowl shorebirds other values, but they also have to maintain these historic water rights and these historic water structures. And so the refuge manager at the time is Ron Garcia, fantastic guy. He saw some fish in a stream and he didn't know what they were. And he reached out to, it was Colorado Division of Wildlife at the time, and the, the aquatic biologist, John Alves, a legendary biologist when it comes to the preservation and, and the restoration of Rio Grande sucker, chub, and cutthroat trout. But John went up and sampled and discovered, lo and behold, serendipitously, when this property was purchased as a National Wildlife Refuge, it contained one of the, as Cole said, two indigenous populations of Rio Grande Sucker left in Colorado and one of the three indigenous populations of Rio Grande Chubs. And since that time, Ron and now the new refuge managers are trying to figure out how to manage this water to produce shorebirds and waterfowl and maintain historic agricultural production and now maintaining two of the rarest fish in, in Colorado. Sounds like a pretty easy job. Yeah, pretty simple. <laughs> Cole, could you talk a little bit now about how fish are using these lands and how you've learned kind of where they're going and some of the fish passage work maybe you guys are working on too? Be happy to. And that's a great question, Katrina, because there's not a lot that was initially known about these species. These were species that aren't heavily on the landscape anymore and they're not threatened and endangered species. Therefore, a lot of their life histories kind of fell in the gaps of information we did not know. And so now we're trying to conserve these species. The Rio Grande Sucker and Chub have been petitioned to be listed under the Endangered Species Act. However, that 
um, review is more than seven years out. And so we're trying to build this information about what do these species need and where do they want to go and how do we increase their resilience? And so we have this opportunity at the Baca where these fish exist. However, we are mandated to use the water on the Baca the way it was historically used for agricultural purposes, because in the in the closed basin area, in order to secure these water rights, um, that's part of the agreement um, that we signed on with for the refuge. And so they exist in these intermittent streams and they flow into these pools that contain water all year round, especially during wintertime when we have very low water. Most of the water is frozen. And so they're trying to find areas to survive. And so we're trying to figure out where these fish are moving. And one way we're trying to figure that out is by use of um, PIT tags. It stands for Passive Integrated Transponder Device. And it's about the size of a Tylenol capsule. And we implant that into the fish. And it gives this fish a unique ID number. So basically, we'll just say seven for now, but it's much longer than that. And so we put these fish in these in, um, in the streams once they have these tags in them. And these tags last the lifetime of these fish. And we will then go and put antennas in the stream. And they will put these antennas way upstream or downstream. And as this fish swims over it, say our number seven swims over this um, antenna, I can go to that antenna and figure out what time and what date that fish moved. And so we start generating these curves based on when are the majority of this population moving? Are they moving upstream? Are they moving downstream? How tied in with the hydrological system are they? Do they need those pulses in order to reproduce? And we're starting to answer some of these questions. It's really amazing. As we started to open up um, the stream, as Paul said earlier, it was highly fragmented due to um, these old um, ranching roads that had these culverts to connect these streams. Over time, these culverts ended up kind of excavating. They act like a fire hose and they spit this water out and they excavate this hole on the backside of them. And that becomes a height barrier. No longer that water sits below that culvert and these fish can't swim up through that culvert. And so what we do is we go back and we identify that as a barrier. We replace that culvert either with a bridge or with the submerged culvert where these fish can then move up and downstream constantly. And we do that through the fish passage program. So we're able to put these antennas in the system and they show us what type of habitat they want to be during low water, during times when that water temperature is maybe too great for them in certain areas. Possibly food concerns. Where is the paraphyton that these Rio Grande suckers like on woody debris? And that information kind of forms a feedback loop for for us in conservation. We're able to then go in and expand those type of habitats that they do like, make sure they have that winter refugia. How can we create more winter refugia in order to increase this population? The more numbers that we have in this population, the more resilient it usually is to um, stochastic events that can threaten you know, their existence on the landscape. And so as this information rolls in, it really not only helps us conserve the species better, but it helps us build these profiles of what um, what type of gravel these species want to spawn in in order to successfully get off reproduction. And then we're able to provide that to our partners in southern Colorado and in New Mexico to the state agencies. And they're able to go out and use that information um, that we've gathered on these species to help conserve their populations of Rio Grande suckers, which um, again, that we know very little about. 
fish are neat because, I mean, a lot of times we think of those, you know, big migrations of maybe salmon, but all fish need to move and they move at different times of year. And we really need to make sure that we're not discounting. You mentioned intermittent streams where maybe there's not even water certain times of year. And we might be like, oh, that's junk habitat. But um, it's really important to get to know where these fish need to go and where that what they're telling us in order to make sure that that habitat is available for them when they need it, because that can be kind of the the balance between life and death for a fish. And one of the other cool things that, that Cole's work is is shedding light on is we have these agricultural diversions that the Fish and Wildlife Service has to maintain, but we can entrain fish into those. And so by using the pit tag technology, we're able to document which headgates are entraining fish. Um, so fish are ending up in the middle of a hay meadow that as it goes dry, they have no place to go. The other thing too is because this is an old wetland complex, and these, these irrigation ditches are putting water up on what were terraces before, we actually, Cole has, has started finding these low areas that he's looking at maybe seeing if we can design a connection so that basically we create a refuge and using the, the data that what types of habitats those fish with pit tags are staying in through, through these critical time periods, if we can replicate that in these low areas and then make sure that we have connection when we have water, we have a way for these fish that do get entrained into hay meadows to end up in a safe refuge. And then when we have connectivity, expand back out into the population. It's kind of a microcosm of what we're going to have to do to manage species in, in the future. When we have less water, we have more development, we have more needs on the land. And how do we, as, as managers, balance all those things? And, and, and I think this is a great example of how you try and figure that out. These fish, you're talking about them being in these intermittent streams. Historically and today, are they only in those intermittent streams or are they in the main stem rivers and larger creeks as well? I mean, historically, they occurred throughout um, both they were they were a big river fish as well as these small tributaries as well. So, but uh, the Rio Grande has changed significantly. We, you know, everything from northern pike to brown trout, um, white suckers. Um, so if they're not being eaten. All species that are, have been introduced, those are right. native species to the rear. Yeah, they've been introduced. And 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 if so if these beautiful, flashy, at least at this time of the year, little fish aren't being eaten, they're being outcompeted by these bigger bodied fish um, that are non, non-native to these systems. And so historically, yeah, they, they were, they were a, a, that's why they're called the Rio Grande sucker and Rio Grande chub. They were found in the Rio Grande. So the white sucker, that's also a catastomus. This is a catastomus, correct? That's correct. Yeah. So why, if, if this species, the Rio Grande sucker, adapted to this particular environment, why is the white sucker out competing it after it's been introduced? It's a very good question. So catastomids, they exist in different drainages. We have the Rio Grande sucker. We have the bluehead sucker over on the Colorado River that flows out to the Pacific. And then you have the white sucker. And the white sucker also flows towards the Atlantic, but that's in the Arkansas drainage and the South Platte drainage. So mainly more Missouri River kind of flows towards Mississippi area instead of towards the Gulf. And so they are separated by hydrological divides. And um, speciation has resulted in different benefits for these fish. Whereas the white sucker, it has become a very big problem on the Western slope as well. So it's out competing all of the Pacific uh, run suckers as well. And now that it's in the Rio Grande system, it's a bigger bodied fish. And due to its larger size, we think that it can hold the habitat a lot better than the Rio Grande sucker. These fish do like to be in pool areas, 
low benthic areas, so low flow areas that are deeper in the water column. And there's not a lot of that area throughout the rivers. And so you introduce another fish that wants to be in that area, that's bigger body, that can push those animals out, that is more competitive, more aggressive when it comes to finding food. Then it makes it very difficult for the Rio Grande sucker to maintain large numbers in the presence of these other fish. And then we start seeing those native numbers slowly dwindle. And then any areas that there are non-natives, so like the main stem Rio Grande, we're not finding the Rio Grande sucker anymore. Only in isolated streams where non-natives have not been introduced yet or don't have access to. And why have those white suckers been introduced? Yeah, but we assume that they, they were introduced along with non-native trout. If someone's out there and they're fishing, how can they tell? Because this is the kind of most typical sucker body out there within the family of suckers. How can they distinguish a white sucker from a real grand sucker, either in the spawning form or in their non-spawning form? The scales help give it away. A white sucker is also going to be a lot bigger than a real grand sucker, but a white sucker is always going to have kind of a chain link scale form to it. And so the scales look like a chain link fence. They're very big from the tail all the way up to the operculum, the gill plate of the fish. Whereas the Rio Grande sucker and other suckers usually have fine scales that go all the way back, different patterns as well as different coloration. Size is going to be your big deal. Size. So if you're looking at like a six inch fish, it's probably going to be your Rio Grande if it's larger. Yeah. I mean, but you're also going to, when you have that six inch fish, the size of the scales gives it away. It stands out pretty dramatically. The Rio Grande sucker is a very fine scaled fish. And the white sucker has these big diamond-shaped uh, scales. You mentioned that the the habitat, the range of the Rio Grande sucker has been greatly diminished. But within those populations, how good are they doing? What's the local abundance like? What, what's the population size sort of looking like? It's a hard question to answer just because trying to figure out the exact numbers of fish throughout the river is hard. Usually we estimate, you know, by the mile, but in these Aboriginal populations that are lived in Colorado, it's only existing within a couple of miles. And so the chub's very prolific within one pool, a large pool, probably say the size of two vehicles put together. If you're in a water pool about that size, you can probably have about, you know, almost two to 3,000 chubs. Where they exist, they can really compete. Advice I've always learned from Paul, he says, if you let a chub Breed on a sidewalk, west sidewalk. I don't even know how to get those palms. <laughs> they, they will breed. Yeah, they'll breed on any. The chubs will breed anywhere. They'll breed on a wet sidewalk that stays wet long yeah, enough. There it is. And that's the hard part is we have these limited reaches. We're trying to reintroduce Rio Grande cutthroat as well. We're trying to reintroduce all these species all at once. And 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 it's a difficult it's a difficult balancing act to try to rebuild these systems. We have a couple of places on on a private ranch, Madno Creek on the Great Sandies National Park, and then on uh, a couple of streams on the Forest Service, uh, U.S. Forest Rio Grande National Forest, we have some some populations of Rio Grande suckers that we're getting reestablished. But again, not knowing a lot about their life history when we need, when we started this, it's been challenging to to get them to stick. We do have a very successful breeding program at the CPW Native Aquatic Species Restoration Facility, which happens to be in the San Luis Valley as well. And the guys there at the hatchery are wizards at producing Rio Grande suckers and Rio Grande chubs. We're just having a heck of a time trying to find water to put them in. All right. Well, thank you, Paul. Thank you, Cole. This was, yeah, it was a fascinating kind of big picture look at a specific fish within a larger context of where it lives. So very good job describing all that. And this was super interesting. You bet. Well, thank you. Thanks for asking questions. We hope you guys get out there and 
enjoy all the fish, including the Rio Grande sucker and all of its friends. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebick, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Racecar, produced and story edited by Charlotte Moore Lambert. Production management by Gabriella Montaquin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish.